What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. There is a lot of talk in education today about how we can assure that students are college and workplace ready. What we want here are students who are independently able to apply the skills needed for success in these venues. While all skills related to literacy, including reading, writing, speaking, and listening, are important, there is a broader set of literacy skills we address that are termed 21st century skills. These skills focus in on the patterns of thinking and communication that students will be expected to engage in throughout their lives and into the future. This changes our focus from not only reading, writing, and math, but also puts it on communication, collaboration, creativity, problem solving, technology, citizenship, information literacy, and life skills. For me, I find these skills are the more complex aspects of education. Sadly, many of the current educational approaches we often focus on are more of what could be considered lower levels of thinking. However, these lower level skills are not always those that are necessary to compete in 21st century environments. Skills for the conditions found in modern colleges and workplaces require higher order skills such as analysis and synthesis. This does not mean that we will abandon lower-order skills in any way, for comprehension and knowledge skills are still fundamental. However, we are being asked to diversify our understanding of all of the skills that make a person literate. With this increased emphasis on important 21st century higher-order thinking skills, it is now up to concerned adults in children's lives, including teachers, librarians, parents, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, to start thinking about how we can help our children refine and use their abilities to discover, use, and apply all of these skills, not only when they are young, but also as they grow up. So finding ways to help our children learn how to be good communicators, to allow them opportunities to collaborate with others or work on a team, to give them authentic ways to express their creativity and find ways to solve problems, and ultimately finding ways to help them engage as a citizen of the global world are just the kinds of life skills each of our children need. Because here at Rachel's World, we believe that with the basics of reading, writing, speaking, and listening, it's the critical 21st century skills that are going to help make our children college and workplace ready. Let's get to know illustrator author Bob Shea. Rachel chats with him about a number of different facets of his work, including the experience of collaboration. Just how different is sharing the work from doing a book solo? We'll also learn about Shea's process of creating character. Bob Shea has written and illustrated over a dozen picture books, including the popular Dinosaur vs. Bedtime and the cult favorite Big Plans, illustrated by Lane Smith. His characters and animations have appeared on Nick Jr., Playhouse Disney, and PBS Kids. He spends his days writing, drawing, and as he says, having conversations with NPR. Here's Rachel and Bob Shea. We're talking with Bob today. Welcome to the show, Bob. 
Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you today about your process of making gorgeous, wonderful picture books. This all is an interesting process when you're doing this with yourself or with your wife, but how does this happen when you work with other authors and illustrators? What, how does the process maybe change a little bit? Well, the, it's, it's funny because when the nice thing is when I work with Lane Smith, I've done two books with him and his wife, Molly Leach, does the typography for those books and she's fantastic. So, I mean, she's such a talented designer that I'm super happy to just hand over the manuscript and I'm like, I can't wait to see what you come up with. This will be great. And then in the other instances where, say, I illustrate for someone else, I generally don't have to do the typography. I do, when I illustrate someone else's book, I turn in a series of illustrations for the story. So my concern is how, how the, my illustrations work with the character that was developed by another author. And then the art director at the publisher would actually do the typography. So when I do my books, it, I see it all as one world. And when I'm, when I'm doing one of my books, you know, much to the frustration of my editor, I can, I'm like, oh, I didn't like that line. So I changed the type here. I changed the wording here to make it work better with everything that was going on on the page. Or I cut this line or I did whatever. So it's all a work in progress right until the last possible second. I think that's an interesting aspect of all of this, because I think sometimes when people see a finished book, they think that it was just kind of born completely formulated, and they don't often realize, particularly kids, I don't think often realize the kind of editing and changing process that goes into it. So how do you approach that? How do you approach that kind of editing revision process with your books? Uh, you know, that's 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 a really good question, and that's something that I tell kids all the time. I show them my stacks and stacks of notebooks that I go through before I get to even an idea. And then when I show them an idea, I'll show them a version of a book, a sketch of a book that looks a little like the final book, but is not the final book. Then I'll show them a tight sketch of the book to show that, look, we're really honing in on all the details, and this is what the character looks like. And I have, I have a book called, uh, 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 a bu it's called Buddy and the Bunnies, don't play with your food. And I show the, all the iterations of the character that I had to go through. So, I mean, with me personally, again, it's always, if the book's a living thing that I can change as I'm working on it, right? I'm, I'm right now, as you called, was working on a, a spread for a book, uh, an illustration in a book that uh, my I, my editor does not know that I'm changing entirely. Ooh, <laughs> so secret out! He thinks I'm making just some kind of minor changes, and I'm redrawing the whole thing because after sitting with it for a couple of days, I realized that it it could be handled better differently. So how how do you get to that feeling as an artist, as a creative person? How do you how do you take that leap? I mean, that it's a very complex process, and this probably doesn't have a direct answer to this question. But but no, when do I you know? <laughs> when do you know that you need to change it? You when you see the book as a whole, like when you finish all the illustrations, you can go back and you have a better sense of this was successful. This needs some work. This might not be clear, and you have to be super honest with yourself and, and say, if I want to make the best thing that I possibly can, I know that I spent, you know, 
four days on this illustration, but if it's wrong, it's wrong, and you have to go back and do it again. Also, I have a tight group of people that I share my work with before it's done, and these are people who I respect their opinion greatly, and they don't say nice things to me all the time, which is exactly what I want. If I send things to people and they're like, oh, it's great, it's great, it's great, I don't send things to them again because that doesn't help me. So I have, I, I have a, uh, my, I'm trying to be really hard on myself to, to be really, really uh, critical of my own work. And then I have other people who, they want the same thing I want. They want the work to be as good as it can. So they're going to be super honest with me in their, in their critique. Well, and how do you deal with that criticism? I think that's an important thing, particularly for kids to understand, is that right. to be able to take criticism or to take negativity is a really important part of of what this creative process is. So, how do you how do you deal with that? Particularly if it stings a little bit, or if it's something that you really love, and somebody says, "Oh, you should get rid of that." How how do you deal with that? You well, you if it's someone I I respect, you have to you have to understand where the criticism is coming from. It's like I mentioned, the people that I respect, they, again, they want the same thing that I want. They want to make the best book possible. So when they say, Bob, this illustration can be better, they're not saying, Bob, you're a bad person. They're saying, I've seen what you've done before, and I know that it can be, uh, it can be better than this. And they don't mean that in a bad way. They mean, when you do a book, like when I do one of my books, I'm looking at thinking about the story, the character, the illustrations, the typography. I'm thinking of all of these things at once, and I've seen it for months and months and months. So, so when somebody looks at it fresh and they see it for the first time, they're going to see things that you haven't seen or you've overlooked because you're so familiar with it. So that's, that's why I'm pretty open to uh, criticism. And sometimes I don't agree with the person, and it's up to me to listen to it or not. And if my wife criticizes something that I've done, the way that it works is I get upset for a day, and I get mad, and then I calm down, and then I make the change that she says because she's right. I think that really is a good way to look at it, that trust that you build as part of this process. But what is your favorite part of this process? Is it the idea making stage or is it getting to the finished book stage or where in the middle? What is your favorite part? My, fa- my favorite part is the whatever part I'm not working on. <laughs> so if I'm writing, I'm like, man, I really wish I was drawing right now. And if I'm drawing pictures, I'm like, I wish I was just sitting here writing. So it depends. It's always the grass is always greener on the other side of the creative fence. Uh, I have to trick my brain into doing what I wish it to do. Because if I sit down and say, I'm going to write a book today about this subject, my brain's going to be like, no, you're not. I'm not doing that no matter what you do. So if I start drawing a picture of something else, then brain will go, hey, remember you wanted me to write that book? I think I have some ideas for that. (laughs) So I always have to be working around an idea. I, I constantly have to remind myself that I'm not digging a hole. You know, it's not a process that's like, well, if you just put more work into it, the hole will get dug. (laughs) I love that. You really have to have this sense of where you are and what you're going to be doing next. So is this something that you 
engage, you said you've engaged with the broader community of children's literature authors and illustrators. Mm-hmm. Who who are some of your favorites personally now as an adult and in this industry that that you look to for influence or inspiration or that you just love? Lane Smith is the most wonderful, nicest person in the world and unbelievably talented. Uh, you know, actually a guy who, if he weren't so nice, I would he would be my enemy, is uh, John Clausen, because I'm so jealous of him. He's so unbelievably talented. And then to top it off, he's really nice, which, you know, is just, it just you know, I can't even, he, he, he can't give me a break no matter what. But he's... he's he is one of my absolute favorites. Zach O'Hora is doing fantastic, fantastic work. Um, Greg Pizzoli is is great. Oh, Julia Sarcone Roach. I hope you know who she is. She writes yes. the, mo- the loveliest books. The Bear Ate Your Sandwich. Ridiculously funny and beautiful. As we wind up today, Bob, as you look at all your books, which one's your favorite? I know this is like picking a child, but which which one is your favorite? <laughs> well, let me tell you. I'll tell you right now. In in my house growing up, I was my mother's favorite, and she was open about it for, all the time. So I have no problem with this question. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> my my favorite my favorite of all of my books is a book called Big Plans that I wrote and was illustrated by Lane Smith. And Lane Smith is a a god in this industry. And he, it was a dream come true to have this person illustrate one of my stories. And that happened really early in my career. And I thought, at the time, I thought, this is going to be done. And I'm done. Like, I don't need, I'm finished. Like, this is all that I need, and I'm happy. And fortunately for me, I've, my career's gone on for many years after that. But still, I, that, was, that was a pretty nice, uh, special, special book. Well, that's good that you have a pinnacle in your career reached early on early on nowhere to go but down no no nowhere to go but up <laughs> so so where are you going now what what are some of the things that you're you're planning for the future i have a book coming out soon i worked on a couple books with this author named jory john it was a great experience and we really had fun and i have a very, there's a very uh funny book coming out next week called uh, quit calling me a monster and uh that's hilarious i i illustrated it jory wrote it that's why i'm so comfortable saying how funny it is. And then in the fall, I have a book called um, The Happiest Book Ever that uh, is coming out. It features all kinds of uh, uh, happy, happy characters uh, inside. There's a big candy parade and uh, uh, a present and a whale with some good news, all kinds of different things. And, uh, and then a very grumpy frog who seems, who's there to, seems to be there to spoil the party. But uh, I'm excited about that one. That's the uh, happiest book ever I describe is the most Bob Shea of all the Bob Shea books I've written. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you. Illustrator and author Bob Shea talking about his process of illustrating books, either collaborating or creating his own. Next, Rachel visits with award-winning author and columnist Anne Cannon about her favorite form of writing, children's books. She often bases them on real life, drawing on experiences with friends and family or on the lives of historical characters. Cannon is the author of a number of books for young readers, including Charlotte's Rose, The Loser's Guide to Life and Love, and The Chihuahua Chase. Her latest picture book, called Sophie's Fish, received a starred review in Kirkus. 
In addition to writing books under the name of A.E. Cannon, Anne is a weekly columnist for the Salt Lake Tribune, a bookseller at the King's English Bookshop, and a sometime creative writing instructor. Here is Anne Cannon with Rachel. We're excited to have Ann Cannon today. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am excited to visit with you about your work. So let's start out. Tell a little bit to our listening audience who may not be familiar with your work, Ann, about some of the things that you write. So I have a couple of different lives as a writer. I write a regular column for the Salt Lake Tribune, and I've done sort of some magazine and freelance work over the years. Uh, Where my heart really has been, though, is in the books that I've written for young readers. And I've written everything from picture books on up to young adult uh, novels. So what is the difference in those kinds of writings? I mean, do you approach it in a different way when you're writing more of a a technical article or opinion piece than if you're writing a novel? Is there a different way to go about it? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, my my call for the Tribune is really not ever very technical. It's uh, so it's mostly based on my own experience. And I have to say a lot of my fiction is actually based on my own experience, too. But when you write a book, you know that you're in it for a slightly longer haul than you would be, you know, just dashing off a column. So um, there, there are differences and similarities that way. So how do you bring your life, particularly into your fiction, and without offending anybody, I guess is another mm, part of that question. <laughs> yeah, well, I've gotten over offending people. Like, I, I don't really worry about that very much anymore. But uh, the thing I discovered early on, actually, is nobody really recognizes themselves. They they recognize other people. So, you know, so far, nobody sued. It's good. Um, I, all of my fiction really does have mo- a genesis in a, a real experience that I had or an experience that my my kids have had. And then I will just take it and sort of like run with it. It's that whole thing where you go, well, this happened, but then what could have happened and what could have happened? And and that typically tends to be how it works out. So So definitely that pattern when you have this experience, but then you always change it and develop it. So how do you go about that process? Do you outline as you write or do you just... Come out? What? How does that work? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a really messy writer. Like I have a friend, well, Dean Hughes, who used to teach here at BYU. He was always, Dean is always very good about outlining first. And for him, the, he has said this before, that the creative part of his work is the outlining part. Um, I've tried it and I'm not good at it. It's like, you know, I was the kid who would write a report and then write the outline afterwards because the teacher wanted an outline. Um, it tends to be kind of organic. I, I just start writing scenes. Often I don't even begin at the beginning. Um, somewhere along the way, I'll just, a shape will start to suggest itself. I usually start with character. Uh, I, I I have a moment where somebody says something or behaves in a certain way, and that's where it starts. So those characters, that's one of the things I love about your writing and your books, for young readers oh, particularly, is that wonderful sense of character that you have. And you really know how to bring these individuals alive. And a lot of times you write about historical um, settings and other things. So so how do you do that? How do you put a character in that kind of setting and make sure that they come alive, particularly for a modern reader? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, first of all, you have to accept that your character is going to be maybe not exactly true to the kind of personality that may have lived then. I mean, you know, they're going to be universal experiences, but but you are writing for a modern audience, and you do keep that in mind a little bit as you write. Uh, in, in terms of Charlotte's Rose, the pioneer novel, I did do a lot of uh, research from uh, – 
primary and secondary sources, and then tried to decide what would be the most interesting to my younger readers. But the characters, every single character in that book is actually based on a real person. And it's a large cast of characters. And so what I did is I wrote down who that person was in real life. And then whenever I needed some um, details or whatever, I would just refer back to my list of, okay, Charlotte's based on this person, you know, so-and-so is based on this individual. And that's sort of how that worked. So did you gather yeah. all of that research together to from different sources? How went. did you do that? You know, I, I had an idea about what I wanted the book to look like. But I, I, I really only researched what I needed to research. Uh, one thing I've found that that some writers who really like to write historical fiction, they use the research part as an excuse not to write. Um, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I was awesome that way. I was mostly just lazy. Because uh, it was like doing homework. I didn't want to do that much research. So I just, I had a sense for what I needed. And then I, then I found what I needed. And then I would go different directions with it too, because something interesting would suggest itself. And, and then I would maybe go on a little bit with that. So would you do research at that point to like make sure something was historically accurate or that there was some kind of context? Is I actually wrote the whole thing first without doing much research. And then I went back and realized what I didn't know. I mean, the first draft told me what I didn't know. And then that's when I really buckled down and then started doing the research I needed to do. So it was sort of that that kind of um, interplay a little bit. I like that because it just goes to show how different writers do different things. And I think sometimes we don't realize that as readers, particularly that not every writer approaches that in the same in the same way. So when you start writing and do you think like that? Do you think like the big picture of this universal, wonderful experience? (laughs) Am I making this out to be something grander than it really is? Here's the thing that I think. I think you can only talk about universal experiences in particulars. And and I think that, you know, if you start out with a grand theme, that that you're going to be, um, that's not the best way to do it. You need to talk about those big things in terms of your own personal, concrete, specific experiences. Because um, people can relate to the emotion behind yeah. it, but they want a story that's yeah. grounded um, you know, in something specific. I think sometimes, particularly with young readers, we don't give them enough credit. And mm. I, you, you probably yeah. have experienced this with, with your books that, you know, adults saying, oh, you know, I'm going to put my own experience on the experience of the reader. But as adults, we need to kind of step back, mm-hmm. I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to approach it. And people find their adults and children uh, relate to different things in the book than I would have thought maybe they would. Um, I, I Very briefly, you know, there's a character in Charlotte's Rose, one of the adult characters, who's just really depressed. I mean, she takes her, her baby out to die one night, you know, and they, they find her. It's based on a real experience. Um, and she wasn't really my favorite character, but I had somebody come up to me afterwards, a woman who just said, I related to her so much because I am being pulled in a million different directions by aging parents, children, all that kind of thing. And nobody cares. Nobody cares about me. And I thought, wow, when I was writing this book, I had no idea (laughs) that somebody would respond so much to that character. And that is so interesting, particularly because you know, this is this is not particularly her audience of yeah. book. You know, it wasn't yeah. written for her as an adult woman with aging parents. Yeah. But there's so much of this that speaks to us of that again, that universal grand nature, yeah. which is which is just a gorgeous way to show that a book is really excellent and long lasting mm. along those ways. Do do you have um anything that you would recommend for like the children out there who are maybe wanting to be 
writers mm-hmm. or maybe even for their parents who are trying to encourage a budding writer? What kind of yeah. tips would you offer them? This is such a cliche, but it's the truest thing I can say, which is that if you want to be a writer, you need to be a reader. And and I would just say, give your kids unfettered access to whatever they want to read, actually. Um, and, you know, we all have parents come into the store who, who want to guide their children to certain kinds of books and things. And there is a place for that. But I would just say, let them read. Let them read what they want to read. Read a lot. Have stuff around the house. And then I would say to children who want to write, go ahead and start writing. Just get yourself a notebook and and have some fun. Create stories that you put yourself into. I always wrote stories about myself as a heroine who was in love with the boy down the street uh, who actually in real life never paid attention to me, but I'm not bitter. Um, and so, yeah, that's th- those would be the two main pieces of advice I would give. I like that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Children's book author A.E. Cannon, or Ann Cannon, talking about her passion for writing children's books and her creative process. We finish up today's program with Abby Vance, associate producer of Highway 89 on BYU Radio, who shares some favorite family traditions related to books that have cultivated her lifelong love of reading. I have a wonderful, wonderful mother who loves to read, like absolutely adores it. Um, And my grandparents are the same. Like I don't think I've ever visited my maternal grandparents and my grandfather without and seen my grandfather without a book in his hand. And so from my youngest youngest years, like my earliest memories, my mom was always reading and my dad loves to read too. His work schedule's a little uh, is a little more lim- inhibiting to that though. Um, but what happened is I taught myself to read when I was th- around 3 years old and um, immediately, like, from that point, like, books were everywhere. Like, my mom, she would she would read to me. She would um, give me books of my own. We would read together. We would read separately. We'd talk about what we read. Um, as I grew older and I had siblings, um, it was just what we did. Like, we read things. And we didn't just read things to be separate from each other. We read things to be together more um, because... <laughs> I mean, I was definitely guilty of being that kid who would keep a flashlight under her covers and read when she was supposed to, not supposed to be, and I'd get my books taken away sometimes. But uh, <laughs> but on the whole, it was reading was for the family. Like we'd recommend books to each other, we'd talk about what we've been reading, we'd get super excited about um, new things coming out. Um, my uh, the rule in our family was that you could get a library card as soon as you could sign your name. And every, it was, I remember just being so excited by that. And my little siblings would be so excited. And you'd practice and practice until you could sign your name perfectly. And then my mom would take us to the library and we'd get our library card. And that was just the greatest thing. And every Monday we would go to the library. Every week we would go. That was our Monday afternoon. We would go to the library. And I remember the library that was by where I grew up, the limit for like youth library cards um, was 10 books. So... You could check out ten, and every every mon- every Monday I would check out my ten, and then throughout the week I would read them and read them, and then when I ran out of mine, I'd read my siblings, and when I ran out of theirs, I'd read my mom's, um, until the next Monday when we turn them all and get ten more, and it was just fun. Like we would, I I love the atmosphere of libraries and bookstores, and um, I love. And I, and I think it's partially just my own inclination, but a lot of it comes from so these 
wonderful positive associations I have with such spaces um, and the experiences I had there. Just the way that sort of shaped my approach now to not only literature, which I still adore, but kind of humanities in general, the arts, education, yeah, all of the above. I don't know. Just the little things like that that fostered such a positive correlation with learning as a non-isolationist activity, I feel like was super important because we weren't in a vacuum, you know. I think inherent in any form of media is a level of escapism, but the important thing is it's escapism to come back and change your return. Like, you, you leave so that you can return better than you left. And my family really embraced that um, philosophy. Abby Vance, associate producer of Highway 89 on BYU Radio, sharing fond memories of reading in her family. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.